The rest of us are going to be in Acts chapter 19. I'd encourage you to open a Bible or your smartphone and find Acts 19. We're going to be looking at verses 23 through 41. I think I only put 40 on my outline, so I lost a verse. I've got to find it before the morning's over. Every week, you know, our, um, our worship team, some of them start at 7.30 at the office and they begin loading up things to bring here. And our bus has to get the trailer and get here by 8 o'clock. And so our worship team meets here at 8 and they begin to unload and set up and do the hard work. And then they rehearse so they're ready for us at 10 a.m. And, uh, you know, today it didn't, didn't go that way. And um, it was probably closer to, I don't know exactly what time it was. It must have been close to 9 a.m. So they were like off. They had to wait here an hour to, to get things going. And they did an amazing job. You sure couldn't tell it this morning. But I just wanted to remind the worship team that Jesus never promised that everything was going to go smoothly. And uh, John 6, 16.33 reminds us of this. Uh, Jesus said, I have told have that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Now they already knew that. But... Is that true, that in this world you have trouble? Like, have you experienced that? Or is this, like, unusual? I want to tell you about uh, someone who experienced trouble, pretty significant trouble in his life, and his name was George Lyle. Lyle is spelled L-I-E-L-E. George Lyle was an African-American man born in Georgia in 1752 to parents of slavery. Lyle himself grew up as a slave. Now, just in 1852, when George Lyle was born, George Washington was 20 years old. You've probably heard of that, George. Nathan Hale, a young American spy who was hung during the Revolutionary War, he was the one who said, I only regret that I have but one life to lose for my country. Nathan Hale was born three years after George Lyle, so this is revolutionary period. Uh, George grew up in a God, on a God-fearing plantation, and he attended church with his owner, Henry Sharp, a Baptist deacon in his church. After hearing a clear presentation of the gospel on many occasions, George placed his faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 23. Later, Lyle writes this. He says, I saw my condemnation in my own heart. I found no way wherein I could escape the damnation of hell only through the merits of my dying Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which caused me to make intercession with Christ for the salvation of my poor, immortal soul. That's, that's just one sentence for an African-American slave to write. Lyle was baptized by his pastor, Matthew Moore, a white pastor. Almost instantly, he began to care about the spiritual well-being of fellow African slaves. He began to read hymns to his fellow slaves and explain the meaning. And he encouraged them to sing while they worked. And he read them scripture, and he explained the gospel. And a huge number of African uh, 
men and women began to place their faith in Christ. Pastor Moore's White Church, Buckhead Creek Baptist Church, recognized God's call on Lyle's life and ordained him to preach God's word. This is pretty amazing for the time. Lyle gathered black believers together. He moved to uh, South Carolina. He, he gathered believers together in Silver Bluff that he'd led to faith. And he formed the first Amer- African-American uh, Baptist church. The first African-American Protestant church in, in the U.S. Pastor Matthew Moore persuaded Henry Sharp. Lyle's owner, to set Lyle free so he could preach the gospel. Out of uh, his first church of new converts in Silver Bluffs, South Carolina, came several future leaders of the African-American church movement. Lyle's former owner, Henry Sharp, was killed in the Revolutionary War which created a problem because his adult children uh, didn't want Lyle to go free. And by this time, George Lyle was married and had four children. Lyle moved to Savannah, Georgia to escape being re-enslaved. There he started the first African Baptist church, along with his friends that came with him from South Carolina, those leaders that he had trained up. This church was so healthy, by 1802, it had 700 members without Lyle, that it was his, uh, the people he had trained, he had left in charge. The adult children of the former owner finally caught up with Lyle to re-enslave him, and Lyle was taken to jail. After a period of time, Lyle was able to provide his legal documents verifying his freedom, and a white British officer vouched for Lyle, and he was released. In 1783, Lyle and his family indentured themselves to a ship's captain headed for Kingston, Jamaica, British Colonel uh, Kirkland, and he took them to Kingston, Jamaica. Lyle worked off the $700 debt over a two-year period. In Jamaica, Lyle planted an African church among the slaves, and by 1791, it had 350 members. By 1814, there were 8,000 Baptists, and he was the first. 8,000 Baptists in uh, Jamaica, and most of them were African, African slaves. White slave owners made a law that no one could preach to the blacks. And as Lyle's influence grew, persecution grew with it. Christians in Jamaica were brutally beaten, sexually abused, and murdered. Slavery was outlawed in 1838. Lyle died in 1828. George Lyle was the first American ordained pastor... He, he planted the first African-American church, and he was the first American, first American foreign missionary. 
and he was never acknowledged. Um, William Carey, the father of modern missions, was 25 years later. Adoniram Judson, uh, often thought of as the first North American missionary. He was the first North American missionary to Burma. Excuse me, William Carey was 10 years later. Adoniram Judson was 25 years later. And uh, George Lyle, the very first, he paid his own way by indenturing himself on a ship. He knew what it was like to experience trouble in this world. And yet, he gave his life to advance the cause of Jesus Christ. That's just like the Apostle Paul. In fact, Lyle was often likened to the Apostle Paul in his ministry. We left uh, the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19, and we're going to turn there in just a little bit. And we, we left uh, Paul on his very third missionary journey. You've been Following in the book of Acts, this is Paul's third missionary journey. Starts in Antioch, the sending church in Syria, a Gentile church. Originally, the church started down in Jerusalem, but now the headquarters is in Antioch for missionary, for mission work. And um, Paul was from Tarsus. He went there. When you get to Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Pisidian Antioch, and Ephesus, that's all modern-day Turkey. And uh, Paul was here, there, and we left him in Ephesus on last week. And it was in Ephesus when Paul got there. There were disciples of John who were waiting for the Messiah to come. This is 20 years after the death of Christ. They didn't know that Jesus had come. And Paul clarified the gospel to them. They'd been baptized with the baptism of John. And, and uh, Paul clarified Christian baptism for them. And they uh, were baptized as followers of Christ. Paul did many miracles in Ephesus and attracted a lot of attention. And uh, there you know that at, as we left him last week, Paul encountered or, the seven sons of Sceva. If you remember, they were exorcists. And they had been watching Paul. And they saw Paul cast out demons in Jesus' name. So they decided... They weren't Christians. They decided they could do it. And so they tried to cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they got into a bit of trouble. And the man that they were trying to exercise um, beat them up, kind of beat them into a pulp. And uh, it was kind of hilarious. And great fear came over the city because of the power of Jesus' name and Paul's ministry. So we picked this story up in verse 23. Uh, and we see a great disturbance, verses 23 through 31. The cause of the disturbance is verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. What way? The way. That's a, re a reference to the followers of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to me except uh, through him, through the Father. And uh, Jesus said, I'm the way. Those who follow Jesus follow the way. And that's the name that uh, early Christians picked up. They were called by others, by non-Christians, the way. And so there arose a great disturbance about those who were following Christ, about what 
the Apostle Paul had been teaching. The problem is identified, verses 24 through 27, a silversmith named Demetrius who made silver shrines of Artemis brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. So Demetrius is a skilled craftsman. He works in silver. He's a businessman. And uh, he's probably like president of their guild. Or we would say for us it would be president of their labor union. Except they didn't have labor unions. They had guilds. And these were they had businesses and they were skilled trades. Where in the U.S. we have big business and we have labor. Labor does not own big business is the one who owns. Demetrius was a business owner, and he was skilled. They made silver shrines of Artemis. Who's Artemis? Well, Artemis is the goddess of Ephesus that's worshipped in Ephesus. There's another Artemis in Asia, and that Artemis uh, is Greek and Roman in Rome. She's called Diana, and she is a virgin goddess of the hunt. And I'm not even going to explain that. But the Artemis of the Ephesians is, um, is the god of, goddess of fertility. And she is a mother. And she is worshipped in Ephesus. And what um, Demetrius did and what other silversmiths did was made little Artemis, miniature Artemis, out of silver. And what people did who worshipped Artemis is that some of them went to the temple and they dedicated their little trinket to Artemis as an act of worship. And some of them just carried them around and kept them close and they sort of wished for good luck that somehow this having this trinket would be a blessing and protect them and uh, maybe even make them fertile. Who knows? Um, we have a picture of Artemis. She is the goddess of fertility. The story is she fell from heaven. This is a copy. I mean, it's, ac- it's, a, it's actually a real statue. But a meteor fell from heaven that appeared to be a many-breasted woman. And they put her in a temple, and worshipped her. And this is a depiction. And so uh, Demetrius made little Artemis out of silver and, and sold them. And it was very, very lucrative. So, and then we have a, a picture of the temple. This is amazing. This was one of the seventh wonders of the ancient world. It's like 425 feet. It was one of the... Some say the largest building of the ancient world uh, before it uh, was destroyed. So, um, Demetrius, verse 25, called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. Uh, Yes. He starts with the bottom line here. It's about the money. And we do receive a really good income from this line of work. Verse 26, and you see and hear how this fellow Paul, it's Paul's fault, has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus. You know, Paul's been there two years, remember? Started in the synagogue, and then he went into the uh, 
lecture hall of uh, Tyrannus, Tyrannus, and uh, he taught there for two years and explained the gospel and he discipled people and had a huge impact on the area because people came to Ephesus, they would hang out with Paul, come to faith in Christ, and they'd go back home. There were a number of churches started in Asia around Ephesus during this time. And so Paul gets blamed here because he had a very effective ministry for leading astray large number of large numbers of people. And he even says, and practically the whole province of Asia. So Alexander has been watching. Paul has had a pretty effective ministry, having a major impact. And then uh, Alexander says, or uh, Demetrius says, he says that God's made by human hands, are not gods at all. Well, that's pretty, he's been listening. That's, Paul would teach that. The created thing is not the creator. And uh, that's Old Testament. It's New Testament. Verse 27, and he goes on, and here's the, here's the danger. There is a danger not only that our trade, our silver, silversmith trade, will lose its good name, but that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. And so now he's going to bring in the religious twist uh, because he's talking to people who care. And he's warning them of the danger of Paul's ministry. The, the gospel ministry is a danger to Ephesus. And to the, a danger to the divine majesty of Artemis. Because the, the silversmiths are already losing money. People from all over the area come to Ephesus and they buy the trinkets of Artemis. And they, uh, they take them home or they take them to the temple. And it's going to stop. It's going to slow down. And so... Um, the uproar we see, verses 28 through 31, when they heard this, they were furious and began shouting. They're, they're outraged. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in an uproar. And so uh, this shouldn't be. They hear what, what Demetrius has to say, and this shouldn't be. They're, uh, they can't believe this is happening. And so what they do is... Uh, the first people they see is, are Paul's companions. The people sees Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. And all of them rushed into the theater together. This happens so fast. It's a mob scene. Uh, he stirs up people. People in the streets start hearing. There's a big theater down the road. This is huge. 25,000 people at the theater in Ephesus. And they just start storming in. You get people going to the theater. You get people just, what's going on? Let's go see. And, you know, not much to do in Ephesus. And so they all want to go to the theater and, and have it out here and find out what's going on. Verse 30, Paul wanted to appear before the crowd. You see, Paul wanted to defend the gospel. Paul wanted to make a stand and let people know what really the issues were here. He wanted to speak to the silversmith and Artemis, about Artemis and about the gospel and about what, 
what they have done and what they stand for. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd, but the disciples would not let him. Verse 31, even some of the officials of the province, some Gentiles, non-Jewish people, probably not even believers, um, some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul. Paul's been there for over two years, and he's had quite an impact on the city, and he's built friendships, and there are people who like Paul, there are people who respect Paul, and here are some city officials. They sent him a message, probably an email, they begging him not to venture into the theater. They didn't go in person, but they sent a message. Paul, don't do it. Don't do it. You're taking your life into your own hands. I bet that was hard for Paul. We're going to have a whole passage this morning without Paul speaking and saying a thing. A great confusion, verses 32 through 41. Now, here's an interesting thing. Luke, remember... I haven't mentioned Luke's name. Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. Luke is an historian. He's interested in details. That's why I like Luke. He he gives an account. He gives us information. Uh, Luke was a physician. He cared about the details. He he was good at observation. And um, here we see, this is what's great. We really see, this is a clear eyewitness account. Um, A great confusion, 32 through 34. And then we see the humor of chaos in verse 32 through 34. The assembly was in confusion, to say the least. Some were shouting one thing, some another. So by now, in the theater in Ephesus, there are thousands of people. They're kind of screaming, kind of people don't know what's going on here. And uh, chaos. Here's what Luke says. Most of the people did not even know why they were there. Isn't this just like humans? You know, they, they, the herd mentality, the mob, this, let's, let's go. Uh, I'm not sure what this is all about, or let's, I'm not sure what actually happened. Uh, they didn't even know why they were there. Verse 33, the Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front, and they shouted instructions to him. Now, I think this gets a little more hilarious as it goes. Basically, you got, you got thousands of people there, a lot of people. Most of the people don't even know why they're there. But there are Jews there. What, who are they? What do they have to do with the story? Remember, the religious Jews, they don't like Paul. They don't like Christianity. They don't like the idea of Jesus being the Messiah. They already have their religious views. They already have the Old Testament. They already know about God. They don't need Paul. Paul is confusing people, according to the Jewish religious people. And so they, they're here, and they want to defend themselves. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander to the front. Who's Alexander? We don't know, but he's a Jewish man, and he gets pushed to the front. He wasn't waiting to speak. He gets pushed to the front. Probably some kind of leader or some kind of spokesman. Um, So he motioned for silence in order to make a defense before the people. What kind of defense is he going to make? Because... The Jewish people haven't even been in this debate about Artemis and Christianity. But the Jewish people, 
don't want the Ephesians to be confused about Christianity and to lump the Jewish people in with them. The problem are the Christians. The problems aren't the Jewish people. So Alexander's going to stand up, and he's going to explain it to everybody. Everything's been peaceful until this Paul showed up. We were here. We lived here without any problems. So he motions for silence in order to make defense before the people. Verse 34, but when they realized he was a Jew... They all shouted in unison for about two, two hours, great as Artemis, the Ephesians. They knew Jewish people didn't like Artemis. They just thought Alexander was lumped together with Paul. They're the enemy. And so our, uh, Alexander is kind of the laughingstock, and he just gets shut down. He didn't get to say anything. This is just like what happens in a real riot. This is a real riot. They overwhelm Alexander and everyone else and with shouts of praise to Artemis for two hours. This is really a mob scene. It's really a frenzy. Um, And then after this two-hour period, this is probably a little bit of wisdom on the part of this leader, the voice of reason, verses 35 through 41. Verse 35. The city clerk quieted the crowd. The city clerk was like a powerful city manager, but he was really more powerful. He was a city executive, but he was the liaison between Ephesus and the Roman Empire. He had a good relationship with the Romans. He was a very important man in in the city of Ephesus, and so he speaks to the crowd. Fellow Ephesians, Doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? So the image of Artemis, he's letting us know here, came from heaven, fell like a meteor. The the many-breasted rock is what it was. And uh, he's saying, everybody knows that. Everybody knows who Artemis is. The world knows The world knows our role. Everybody knows that the goddess Artemis is from Ephesus. Paul's not going to mess with that. Fellow citizens, doesn't all the world know the city of Ephesus is the the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and her image, which fell from heaven? And so... um, The city clerk identifies with the people. Hey, he's a pretty wise leader at this point, and he identifies with them. Verse 36, he says, Therefore, since these facts are undeniable, the facts that he just quoted about being the guardian of the temple of Artemis, since these facts are undeniable, you ought to calm down. And not do anything rash. He says, don't worry. Don't don't do anything stupid. Just calm down. Verse 37. You have brought these men here. Though they have neither robbed the temples nor blasphemed our goddess. And he's saying, you know, guys, maybe you didn't think this through. Stop and think about it. These guys really haven't broken 
any of our laws. And there are no chargeable offenses against Paul and his companions. They haven't robbed any temples. And they really haven't dishonored Artemis. Verse 38. If then Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a grievance against anybody, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. They can press charges. So if Demetrius and the others have a grievance, they should just take it up with the proper authorities. This is where law and order matters. The courts, he's saying, are open and are ready. So if you have a charge, you can just go press charges. You don't need to have a riot here in, uh, in the city. Verse 39. If there is anything further you want to bring up, it must be settled in a legal assembly. As it is, we are in danger of being charged with rioting before Caesar because of what happened today. In that case, we would not be able to account the assembly and law and order protects the gospel without Paul saying a thing. He's saying, you know, remember, folks, we do things legally here. Lighten up, guys. We are in danger of being charged with unlawful assembly. So if you have a charge, just take it to the court, and we will process it. Pretty simple. And they disperse. Okay, some lessons. Number one, don't be surprised when the gospel, when good news, is misunderstood. When Paul went from town to town, there were many Jewish people who did not understand the gospel. They heard it, and they heard it, and it just made them angry. And yet, some people's hearts were open to hear and understand and to place their faith in Christ. When they did place their faith in Christ, God began to work and change everything about them from the inside out. It was a God thing. Don't be surprised when the gospel is misunderstood. The Ephesians didn't understand the gospel. The silversmith heard about it, saw it, and um, it was having an impact on their business, and that's what they didn't like. The gospel is, is that Jesus Christ, now think about this, Jesus Christ died on the cross. This is not new. You. He died on the cross. He was buried, put in that grave, and on the third day he rose again. How crazy is that? Think about it. That's the gospel. That's the message. And yet, that's the message that God has given. He will forgive. It's God's way. Jesus said he is the way. And that's God's plan for salvation and God's plan for forgiveness. But it isn't necessarily super easy for people to get. It doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense to people. I remember hearing the gospel over and over again. And I sort of intellectually wanted to understand it. And I was reading, for the sake of spending time with the pastor who wanted to witness to me, 
he brought me some theological journals that really had philosophy in them because I was a philosophy major. And he, I was reading a chapter about the epistemological necessity for God, and I was fascinated about it. And I was moving toward, I could possibly believe in, in, in a God. I was an atheist, you know, and I'm, I'm thinking about becoming a theist. And then he would tell me, that Jesus died on the cross, that doesn't make, and that his blood paid for my sins, and I would just shut down. That doesn't make sense to me. So don't be surprised the gospel gets misunderstood. I'm very grateful that there came a time where it didn't make sense because God opened my heart, and I got it. Secondly, second lesson, some, uh, the gospel sometimes impacts people's livelihood. It's, so, it's pretty amazing when you look at what happened in the first century, how many people were beginning to be affected by the gospel. People were coming to faith, and it began to have an impact on the silversmiths in Ephesus. Pretty, pretty uh, important business. And it was beginning to have an impact on their li- livelihood. Sometimes people who come to faith change their career paths. I was a tire builder at Firestone, and I went to seminary and became a pastor. Um, Sometimes prostitutes take a new career path after they come to faith in Christ. I've had people uh, in in my ministry who were bartenders when they came to faith in Christ, and after a while they decided they would like a different career path. There's nothing in the Bible that says you can't be a bartender, by the way. I'm just saying they chose not to pursue that path. Um, This past Thursday, I just um, heard the story of Christopher Yuan, and he um, was a gay man who uh, became a drug dealer, and then he was put into prison. And in prison, he found faith in Jesus Christ. And when he came out of prison, he ended up for seminary and now is a professor at Moody Bible Institute. Um, the gospel can have an impact on, a, on people's livelihood, sometimes for good. And control never has a good outcome. The riot in Ephesus was fueled by angry people. And the anger just fueled this, and it just carried them along. And sometimes they weren't always reasonable, and that's what happens when anger is out of control. Anger is a God-given emotion. It helps us experience life, sometimes tells us when things are wrong. There's even such a thing as righteous anger, but righteous anger is never out of control. In fact, it's empowered by the Holy Spirit. But anger out of control. It's very destructive. It's destructive on us personally and destructive on people um, around us. Uh, Ephesians uh, 4.26 says, Be angry, but do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. The value, the importance of dealing with anger and talking about it. Anger lets us know sometimes things are wrong or out of whack and they need attention. We need to attend to them. Maybe we need to talk to somebody or talk about them. We need to solve a problem. But we don't need to power up 
and destroy everybody around us with anger. Fourth one, cooler heads prevail with both Christians and non-Christians. The city clerk of Ephesus was not likely a Christian. And yet, he went into a very uh, volatile situation and reasoned with people and prevailed a highly emotional, highly toxic environment. And it communicated with non-Christians. And, uh, you know, the same is true. Cooler heads will prevail. If you're talking as a believer in a situation that needs some kind of stability, whether you're talking to Christians or whether you're talking to non-Christians, cooler heads will prevail. Things get really crazy. It's a good principle. Number five, God did not intend you to view your government as the enemy. Romans 13 is really, really clear about this, and I would just encourage you to read Romans 13. Governments are not perfect. Our government is not perfect. Sometimes governments have tyrants and get immoral and very cruel and violent. Um, we're very fortunate in the U.S. that we, we live in a country that we have ways that we can disagree with our country or with political officials in a God-honoring way. We can disagree in a God-honoring way. We have uh, no right to bad, badmouth our government. We have no right to badmouth government officials. You can disagree with them. Please do when it's appropriate. We don't have to badmouth anyone. We can treat everyone. But isn't it amazing that we live in a country where we're not going to get shot because we disagree? And we should really uh, appreciate the place that God has enabled us to live. So speak about people with dignity. Don't use indignity. Verse uh, number six, last lesson. Remember, the mission of the church is to advance the gospel, that is to advance the good news, not to live life problem-free. We sometimes have the idea... Um, and we, we had the picture in, in Acts 19. Paul's life was not easy. Paul continued to advance the gospel. Paul continued to have success. But it was a hard road. Sometimes he was thrown in prison. Um, what I didn't say was George Lyle was thrown in prison on many occasions, even in Jamaica. Sometimes Paul was thrown into prison. Sometimes he was beaten badly. George Lyle... Life was hard. He was a black American hero. He was a Christian hero. His life was hard. His life was not comfortable. Sometimes in America, we feel like if we're good people, we should have a good life. We, we sometimes think that because I'm a Christian, if I'm good, if I behave well, don't do bad things, I deserve God to take care of me. There's no promise for that. God will provide for what you need. God will provide for what I need. And I can say I have had an abundant life. But Jesus also said to me that in this world, I should expect a little trouble. It's 
kind of normal. I bet everyone in here can say some difficult things that have had to them that they've had to cope with. And um, I'm not trying to be a lot more realistic about following Christ. There's going to be some difficult things in the days ahead. So, six lessons. Um, I'd like to stand. Next week, we're going to be in chapter 20. And uh, Apostle Paul's story continues. And next week, the message is about the dangers of falling asleep in church. (laughs) Read Acts 20. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your word. Thank you for godly models like the Apostle Paul, like George Lyle, people who sacrificed their lives to advance the gospel and to serve you. May we be followers of Christ. May we be willing to sacrifice our lives. Thank you that you've warned us that times can be difficult in our lives, even when we walk with you and when we walk closely with you. Thank you that you have overcome the world. We can count on you. That we can do all things that we need to do to honor you through Christ who gives us strength. For Jesus' sake, amen.